session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let's get to the books of the week, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk on talk about on next Monday's show is Understanding Iran by William R. Polk. Understanding Iran, everything you need to know from Persia to the Islamic Republic, from Cyrus to Khamenei. Um, and uh, this book was recommended by a few people actually had heard of, of the book. I think it was written several years ago and then updated again a few years ago. So, of course, uh, with things changing so much in Iran or so much happening every day, this is going to be more of the history up to more recent times, but not including the very recent now type of present in history. But I did want to expand my own knowledge and understanding about the history of Iran just to know it better and also for the perspective, I'm sure it lends us to um, how we got to where we are today. So, Understanding Iran by William R. Polk. I'll talk about that on next week's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Wired for Love by Stephanie Cacioppo. Wired for Love, a neuroscientist's journey through romance, loss, and the essence of human connection. And so uh, in that subtitle, uh, you get a lot. So Stephanie Cacioppo, the author, is a neuroscientist and... She is sometimes, jokingly, she refers to herself, uh, she was called Dr. Love by people in the media, sometimes interviewing her. But what was interesting is that she shares how from a very young age, she didn't think she ever wanted to get married herself or to to be in that type of relationship. She thought she was in love with her work, uh, and that was what she would want to do, um, which made it kind of funny that she was this doctor of love about understanding the neuroscience of love, but herself um, wasn't experiencing it until, as she shares, she did meet a man, John Cacioppo, and and fell in love. And quite to her surprise and their his surprise in some ways too, they fell in love and eventually she did get married. And so, through the book, she shares uh, this the the research and the neuroscience related to love and our capacity to love, but also weaves her own personal story of, as the subtitle says romance but sadly loss because after several years of of being married um, John lost his life to cancer and that itself was a battle that seemed to have taken some time and so she shares about her personal loss and the incredible grief she experienced but also looking at it from a scientific perspective as well so that made the book even more interesting that it wove her own personal story and experience within um, the the science of love, and also an interesting point about their uh, marriage. He, Doctor uh, uh, John Cacioppo, had done a lot of research on loneliness and talking about how loneliness 
is itself this epidemic that it's causing a lot of harm to people psychologically, but even physically. And so there was something kind of funny about Dr. Love and Dr. Loneliness finding each other as they did. And so the book, as I mentioned, goes through various aspects of looking at love and even to study love. She shares how um, one mentor kind of was telling her she shouldn't do it or it'd be bad for her career. And a word like love doesn't seem like a word related to science, or it didn't for a long time. I think we're seeing it more, but it seemed like just some fluffy thing, some soft thing, um, something poets and artists might talk about, but it wasn't a space that science could um, work on or, or learn about. But of course, it's such a significant part uh, of the human experience that it would be very uh, stupid not to study it and to really understand it better. I even think we are afraid to use this word love because of the vulnerability or the way we think of it as something mushy and not good, even in professional types of settings. So as a therapist, I think one way of looking at what we do is to give a type of love to our clients, which saying that brings up things love. What does that mean? Being in love, romantic love. And here's where also the words uh, we use a word like love to mean many things or many different types of things. But when I think of how I work with clients, often what we're doing is we're helping them to internalize or receive some type of love they likely did not get or what was missing in the love they got to help them better understand and see themselves and to see themselves in a better way. When someone loves us, they make us feel better about ourselves and we could think, well, I shouldn't be dependent on that. And it's not necessarily about dependency, but there is a growth that we experience through love. Parents giving it to their children, of course, but then in all stages of life, we can grow through love. And I think in therapy, we see that. But if you say as a therapist, I love my clients, or I'm giving love to my clients, showing love to my clients, it could sound like, whoa, that's not okay. Or what does that mean? Or no, it should be something so technical. But I really think that is a critical component of it. And so um, I hope that these types of uh, studies and understandings of love will continue because I think it's such a critical part of the human experience. And she does make this point that although at times she'll talk about other kinds of love in the book, even comparing them, um, the focus of her research has been on romantic love. And so um, she shares how our brains, as she puts it, are wired for love and even... Um, she did a meta-analysis, meaning looking at a variety of different studies to see what we see, how the brain looks in love, and comparing three different types of love. Um, romantic love, also companionate love, um, companionate love, meaning like love between friends, so a platonic type of a love, and also maternal love, because there was research on that. And she found that uh, it, it appeared that 12 main br brain regions we're all lit up or active uh, in these different types of love, but to different degrees and in different ways. So they were not identical. And so, for example, in romantic love, the cerebral cortex um, in charge of higher level functions, especially related to things like self-representation and body image were active. And so what's interesting here is we often hear people when they're in love, 
kind of romantically might say my better half when they talk about their partner. But there seems to be something to this more than just a romantic, poetic type of a statement that when we're in love, there's something that the the Aaron's social psychologist, husband and wife, came up with this term self-expansion, meaning that when you are in love, um, or in general, this is a sense of expanding the sense of self, but what we see is when people are in love, their sense of self can expand to include the other person. And so we all naturally can feel empathy for other human beings. You see someone in pain, you feel something. You see someone uh, thirsty, and you can imagine what that's like or feel it to some degree. But when we uh, look at self-expansion, that's even to a stronger degree. And so you see this that when people are in a loving, romantic relationship, the other person's pain can feel like their own pain, even feel more important than their own pain, or thinking about them being okay. Okay, I'm going to get some food, but well, will there be food for my partner too? Will automatically come up for them. And so we can see this also play out in the brain. So some research um, that she has done has found that people who are more passionately in love, this part of the brain, the I think it's called the angular gyrus, um, lights up even more, gets more active uh, based on how in love they are, if they're more passionately in love. So that's an interesting thing to look at, um, how we think about love again in this, like, well, it's just this feeling, which makes it seem sometimes the way we talk about it, like it's not something we can understand. Um, doesn't mean we'll fully understand or can really describe the experience or experiencing it will never be something you can read in words. You have to experience it, but it doesn't mean we can't better understand what's happening in the brain and body. Um, she also talks about uh, one of the chapters is called the love machine because she had helped develop this test and um, where people would be put in a, a brain scanner and they would look at, for example, uh, either two people, let's say if they were interested in, they were dating two people trying to figure out which one they really should be with, who should they um, uh, keep dating or continue dating, who's a better match for them. And so based on some research that I think she had also done, uh, and maybe others as well, that when you are primed or think of the person that you love, you actually perform better on certain tasks, including, for example, determining whether something is a real word versus a fake word. And so she would show them in a subliminal way, meaning they weren't conscious of it, but flash the person's names, the two people's names at different times and see how they performed on these tasks. And based on that, and I think, of course, um, I don't know if I would base our, my whole life on this, some of it is not speculation, but how do we make sense of this uh, to be perfectly sure? But nonetheless, uh, it was dubbed the love machine because people would then see, well, if they performed better when they were thinking about John versus Tim, then that would mean John is more their match than Tim. Um, again, I think there's a lot of factors probably at play to look at it as something that we can wholly determine as a reason to decide who to be with or not to be with. But it's interesting to see that there are ways we can look at the brain that we're still, I think, trying to understand better um, to know or to get some idea of who we might even be more attracted to, which then lends itself this question that why do we have to hook ourselves up to a machine to tell us who we are more attracted to or who we like more? And to me, this brings up this notion of how important self-awareness is and self-understanding is, and also how limited 
our self-awareness or self-understanding is or can be. Uh, Because we think, well, who are you attracted to or who do you like more? Who else would we ask other than you? And you would respond. And it's reminding me of uh, the book last week, The Self-Delusion by Gregory Burns, that the sense of self or thinking we know ourself or have just one self, it's much more complicated than that. Um, But it's interesting to think that we ourselves might have a hard time knowing, but as I alluded to therapy work earlier in the segment, when you work with clients, you can see how often they are not sure why they're doing what they're doing. When they think of someone they do date or are attracted to or decisions they make in their life, sometimes we don't really know or sometimes afterwards it might become more clear to us, oh, that's why I did this or now I can recognize what was driving me. Um, But we have so much going on in our brains and so much of it is unconscious and things we're not aware of that it can make sense that even though we think we should know who we're more attracted to or who would be more well-suited for us, uh, we often don't know. We don't have that awareness within ourselves of even what we like. So they've even done studies that I think it was in Gregory Burns' book of what songs people like and looking at their brains, they were better able to predict what songs became popular, but it wasn't necessarily true if you just asked them which songs they thought would be good. So the brain kind of knew something, but our conscious awareness of it wasn't quite there. It's quite fascinating, actually. Um, so she's done this research on on love and seeing how the brain responds to love. As I mentioned, there's some benefits to love, even how you perform or how your mind acts or how your empathy expands. And you're better able not just at understanding your partner, but also better at understanding um, others as well. And so throughout the book, she discusses... Um, different things, as I mentioned, this expansion of the self, but also the way that it um, includes things like grief and loneliness, that these might be social types of cues that we have, these signals that, of course, when we think of loneliness, it sounds like a bad feeling. And if we think of grief, of course, it could be one of the most painful uh, human emotions we can experience. But we can understand them in being part of our social makeup or what helps us even get through relationships and get through our lives to be able to process the feelings that come along with relationships. And I I do like the thinking about grief that it's the price we pay for the relationships we get to enjoy. Those loving relationships we have, they feel so good that when we lose them, they hurt so bad. And There's no other way. You can't have something feel very good that if you lose it, you don't feel pain. And so grief is that pain that that we go through. And it's a very real one, but one that we have to go through if we want to enjoy the relationships that we get to have to truly experience them. If someone you love dies or you lose them in some way and you don't feel any grief, that likely means you didn't feel close to that person because you will feel something when you lose that relationship. Um, Another study, just I will end on this note, when we look about love or relationships and and what does it mean, she cited a study that I I really find interesting where uh, they had women with their partners and they, if they were holding their partner's hand when they received an electrical shock, they reported the pain as less, which might just sound like, well, They think it's not as bad because the person is there. But even in their brain, we see that the parts of the brain that experience pain were less activated. So literally, they felt 
less pain when they were holding their loving partner's hand. And I think it's a wonderful analogy for life because life is difficult. Life will never be easy or pain-free. But loving someone and having that loving relationship can make life much more beautiful, but also can make those painful parts not go away or become pain-free, but become less difficult to deal with, less painful. And that's really something beautiful that we can give to one another through our relationships. Life will always be hard, but it could be less hard if we have loved ones in our life that make us feel loved and connected. So I, I really did enjoy this book and would recommend it because, as I mentioned, her own story woven into the, the science, I think, definitely added something to it. So I appreciate her sharing that story, her own vulnerability in, in sharing that uh, in this book. So again, that was Wired for Love by Stephanie Cacioppo. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, I wanted to add a few more thoughts on the book, uh, Wired for Love by Stephanie Cacioppo. Um, I did mention the the study of women holding their husband's hands. I don't know if they've actually done it the other way around or with same-sex couples, um, that if they were holding their partner's hands, they perceived less pain and how they reported it, and also their brains um, seemed to show less of an experience of pain. And so there are other ways uh, that are that being in love can help our physical health. So it's not just that it feels good in an emotional way, um, but also can have health benefits for us. So she shares some things as a between single couples versus those in satisfying, uh, healthy, long-term romantic relationships. they People sleep better. They have better immune function. They exhibit fewer addictive behaviors. They suffer fewer recurrent strokes. And they even have a better survival rate for some diseases, including some cancers. And then so now this sometimes can be attributed to people who say, well, when you're in a relationship, there might be things that affected such as someone just looking after you if you live alone in a home versus having a partner. Uh, for example, if they notice a mole on your body that you might not see easily yourself or on your back, let's say, they might be able to then help you detect skin cancer. Or I've also seen for men especially that uh, having a partner, having a wife will make it more likely that they go to doctor's appointments or make doctor's appointments, which can uh, contribute to, to them being healthier because they are more likely to stay on top of things. But it doesn't seem to be just that because even they see that, for example, people who have heart surgeries, they're more likely to survive and they take out other factors if they're in a happily, uh, a happy marriage, if they're happily married. They've also done things like giving couples um, blister wounds. So I don't know if you would want to volunteer for that study or not, but then um, they saw that if they then talked about something that was either loving or harsh, it affected how quickly they healed. So we could see that even the ways we interact with one another have effect on our immune system and our the, the ability for the body to heal itself. And I also mentioned that study about the pain. And what was interesting was um, in that same study where they found that if the woman was holding her husband's hand and they were happily married, she no long, not only perceived less pain, but also her brain registered less pain, but was that in unhappily married women, this effect disappeared. 
So here she writes, the unhappily coupled women experienced just as much pain holding the hand of their partners as if they were completely alone, which is in a way heartbreaking, maybe not surprising, but it also uh, points to a, a discussion she has in the book where she talks a lot about loneliness, as I mentioned, her late husband, Dr. John Cacioppo, was studying loneliness and was a big person in the field who promoted how significantly it hurts us. But we can see that even though you're married, you would technically not be alone because someone is there, but you might feel lonely or still have that feeling of isolation. And so that's something quite interesting, I thought, to, to keep in mind and to remember, as we've heard before, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. You can be by yourself at home and be very happy, or you might be in a party and feel very alone, or be in a romantic relationship, be committed to someone and feel very alone. So I thought that was quite fascinating to recognize that it's not just relationships, it's always the quality of the relationships that matter. If you're in an unhappy marriage, a toxic or painful relationship, it's actually going to hurt you, not help you. So I think that's also something to keep in mind when we think of uh, the benefits of marriage. For example, it's happy marriages, not unhappy marriages. Um, and something else that she talked about in the book that her husband uh, discusses is that it's not time that heals, or the worst thing to tell someone is that time heals when they're grieving. And uh, I think that was great advice because he puts it not that time won't heal, but it said what you do with that time, or that's how I've put it, but that it's not just time, it's what you do. Healing through others, even when we're grieving, can be very helpful. And she talks about her own experience that actually for some time uh, she didn't want to be around people, but many people did show her a lot of love and affection and care, even taking care of logistical things like bringing food or walking her dog. But that um, I think that probably was helpful for her to she did share reaching out to someone that gave her some great advice to just start running uh, every day and also told her what to eat. He was a former athlete, and that was very helpful for her. So that was some advice she also had when you're grieving to, to get active. If you can, it's very difficult to do it at any time to get ourselves as active as we can be, but we can especially need it when we are um, grieving or going through some type of emotional pain. But I really uh, found this part fascinating about the, the healing part because I've always thought about this this concept too, that people say, well, time heals, which then makes it seem like it's a passive process that no matter what you do, time will heal. And that's not true. It's what we do with the time that will heal. So it takes time to heal or you need time to heal, but it's not sufficient to make you heal just because time has passed. The analogy I like to use is if you break your leg, it will take time for it to heal. It cannot be good tomorrow. So you need some months, weeks or months for it to heal and for you to be healthy again. But if you walk and run on it every day or try to, it won't heal with time. Time will not just make it heal by itself. And not only that, what you do with those things, that time can affect how much it heals. So if you get a cast, if you, I'm not a medical doctor to tell you exactly how to heal a bone, but if you get a cast, possibly go to physical therapy, do all the right things, make sure you get enough sleep and rest, that can affect the degree to which you heal during that time. And so I really appreciated that 
perspective because often we think about things like healing from an emotional experience as just a passive experience that just let the time go and you will definitely feel better. Yes, likely you'll feel a bit better with time. So it's not to say nothing will change, but we do see that grieving being such a complex and heavy emotional experience can be a a difficult one to navigate or to expect to just get out of okay. Or it's very easy for you to fall into what is sometimes referred to in a clinical sense of complicated grief, meaning that after a year or two years, the individual is still in some ways stuck in that grieving process. Now, one thing I'll, I'll note is when we even talk about something like complicated grief or my perspective on it would be that it doesn't mean you're not sad about the person being gone anymore, or it doesn't mean that you won't get emotional at times thinking about them, or possibly if a anniversary comes up either of their death, or let's say if you were married of your marriage anniversary or that person's birthday or holidays, that certain times won't still make you very emotional or you might experience certain things. Uh, another thing about time healing is that even if you do the right things and you're in the healing process, you don't heal in a linear fashion, meaning that even though over time, if you're doing the right things for yourself, you will get better. It doesn't mean that every day will be better than the day before. What people often experience and can really throw them off is they feel like they're getting better. And then one day they wake up and they feel as bad as they did the first day or almost as bad as they did the first day. And that could be really scary because it could make them feel like, oh, I'm not getting better at all. If I'm basically back at square one and it's been four weeks, then maybe I'm never going to feel better again. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not healing. It just means that healing doesn't happen in this linear way. Sometimes as you're healing, another wound within that wound might open up or a certain aspect of the process comes up where you yourself are feeling worse. And then that day, something triggers some feelings in you. So it's just important to keep this in mind. I've seen it not just with um, losing a loved one who has died, but also in breakups that people have this process where they feel like they're quote unquote getting over it or getting better. And then they have a day where they feel like they're back at square one. And they think that means uh, the breakup was a mistake or that they're never going to get over it. But it's, it's not necessarily that that's the truth. Um, another thing, I, I use that phrase, you can't see me doing air quotes, but I put them there, um, is getting over it. can make it seem like you just get past it and, and move on. But for more, most significant losses that we experience, we will never be the same. And that's something we have to accept and recognize, that you can never feel the way you did before that loss. Now, it doesn't mean I'm even saying better or worse, but life will always be different. If you're married and you lose your partner of many years, or it's a tragic death at a young age, or let's say you horrifically lose a child, which I think is the most painful relational type of experience that you can have, there isn't a getting over it. Life might continue and life will go on, but it doesn't mean you should get over it or you will get over it as if it never happened. And this is also important for people who are there for someone going through some type of a loss. We often say too much rather than say too little in these cases. We think we have to 
give some perspective that makes the person feel good. And I think this is unfortunate. We do this so often that even not in severe cases, but in general, we think that to give emotional support means I have to make the person feel good. I have to make them feel better or I have to fix the problem for them. When none of those things are needed and most of the time you can't even do any of those things. If someone just lost a loved one, they're not going to be happy today. And so if you want to support them, you have to accept that reality that I'm walking into a situation that is very dark. I might make it slightly less dark, but it's still going to be dark when I leave. And I have to sit with that while I'm there and after I go. And can I tolerate that? Because if I can't tolerate that pain and being in that painful space, I won't be able to be there for this person that I care about. We have to accept the limitations of our support. That even in helping, it doesn't mean it makes things good. It might just make them less unbearable. Not even make them less bad, just make it so it's so excruciating, but it might be slightly less excruciating if we're there for them. And so that's something to remember that we're not going to make them happy, but we shouldn't expect that. The person understandably will be very sad and probably needs to be very sad to heal and to go through this process that they're experiencing. And and this is something that I've heard from many people that the things people said really, really upset them. Things like even they're in a better place, imposing your belief on them or making it something positive or uh, oh, well, you're lucky you had them this long or, um, you know, someone has another family. Or, well, at least you have this person still. And those things might even be true and might give some perspective. But you have to be very careful not to impose some kind of a reality or perspective on someone when they might not be there or you're the one that doesn't have to go through that pain. Or one of my least favorite ones is, if someone loses a child, they say God needed another angel, which might sound sweet to you and might even be your belief, but they don't necessarily believe that or feel that that's fair, that their child had to be taken from them because God needed an angel. And I don't know if I really get the logic of that anyway, but being aware that we don't have to make them feel good could take away this pressure to say this magical thing that will change things and turn them around. I'm going to say this thing and now they're going to stop crying and be happy. No, it's not going to happen. They they are sad. They need to be sad. It was a sad thing. So if you want to be there for someone, be willing to sit through that pain with them, to sit in that darkness with them and to realize that's a big support. That means a lot. And it doesn't mean they're going to come out of it feeling bright, but that maybe as we're saying about the physical pain being less, this excruciating pain might be slightly less and that is something truly special and so through people we can heal a lot but we have to try our best to be there in the best way possible for one another and another part of this is really understanding what the person needs which is what they can express to us more than we can tell them what they need but give them that support and recognize that in the long run small things will add up to a lot of healing but it will take some time so time doesn't heal just by itself, but it does take time and it's what we do at that time that can lead to our long-term healing. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back. For the last segment, I wanted to give some investment advice. Uh, not something you usually get on my show. Um, but as you might be wondering or already figured out, it's not about financial investment, but how we invest or what we invest our time and energy and effort into. And similar to how some people might talk about investments, that if you don't take any risks, you don't get any rewards. The same is true for investments into our relationships. And so uh, what I'm encouraging you to do is to think of it as a bull market and to invest everything you can into your relationships or your life savings or your life experience into your relationships. Um, And truly there is no beauty or gain in a relationship without risk. So that really is true. And also the risk and the investment does take effort and energy and we might even need reminders which is what i'm doing right now for all of you listening and also for myself when you know reading a book like this wired for love and seeing research looking at what makes people happy long term in the more long-term ways of looking at the experience of feeling good about our lives it is the quality of our relationships and so when we recognize that we recognize that the best investment we can make is into our relationships to make that time energy effort into that but also looking at risk we talk about financial exposure we have to make an emotional exposure to have high quality relationships so if you want to live a pain-free life then i would encourage you not to have many or any close relationships at all that would protect you from that pain but you'd also live a very unfulfilling and unhappy life and would feel not just alone but lonely because you wouldn't feel that connection with anyone and so to have those relationships it does take that risk Um, i see it all the time with, with clients where when we look at dating and what many people can experience is they're okay in their lives so why would i need someone else and so it doesn't mean you necessarily need someone else like you would actually die without them the book that talk about ways that we seem to do better cognitively and, and physically when we're in in a loving relationship but you you'll survive without it and so it comes down to what what do i want and what am i willing to risk to have what i want not everyone has to be in a committed long-term relationship but what i find is that many people want that and they want to feel in love but they don't want to take the risks that it takes to be in love or put that effort and energy into it and the big part is that risk and this is when we talk about a fear of intimacy and as i've discussed it can sometimes sound like a blanket term you really can say that about everyone because i think we all have a fear of intimacy that it's part of this coin that there is a uh, incredible feeling that comes with that closeness but it also comes with a fear or with anxieties of things like getting hurt by that person first just getting hurt to even risk getting close or will they want to get close and then of course losing that person would be very painful once you're close and there's lots of things that can happen along the way so there is that fear that will always be there but there's no way to again if you don't risk to have that reward to that have that beautiful feeling of being very close with someone and so if we just listen to what might feel right in the moment it usually will make us go away from pain. And so people might 
start to get close, you're feeling, eh, what's the point? It's all, all a waste of time anyway, or I'll probably just get hurt, or I'm okay, well, I don't need anyone. And we find these reasons to talk ourselves out of taking those risks. And so I'm, again, encouraging you to take those risks, to go into that uh, unknown, to go into that potential of getting hurt, because it is what is, to me, the highest experiences we can have are those close, loving relationships. So uh, to me, it's a, there's analogies of either going deep in the ocean or climbing a mountain, but the more you risk going up the mountain, the further you can fall and get hurt. If you don't go up very high, even if you slip and fall, you're going to be okay. If you go all the way to the top of the mountain, it's harder, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, literally there might be ups and downs on that journey. And if you do fall from up there, you can get hurt badly. But when you're at that high spot, you also can have this incredible view and experience that you can never have at the bottom of the mountain. You can never feel that way. Someone could take you a picture of it or tell you about it, but it'll never be like the experience of actually being there. And so in our relationships, that work means having being vulnerable, revealing more about ourselves, having difficult conversations, having time invested into the relationship when we maybe want to do other things or other things might come up. We make sure we devote our time to the relationship and with that we can go higher and higher up this mountain. And that means that we're getting closer in this analogy. I'm saying the higher in this mountain, the more intimacy we have, the more emotional closeness. But of course, the higher we go, if something happens in this relationship, ooh, that will hurt. If you fall that long way, it hurts. If you get very, very close to someone and feel so emotionally close to them, if you lose that relationship through some kind of breakup or divorce, infidelity or death, it's going to hurt. But you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Will I risk that pain in order to have the most ex beautiful experience that I can have as a human being. I even think another human relationship, we might not think of it as having that risk in the same way as relationships, but to me, it includes the biggest risk we can experience or the biggest pain we can experience in a relational sense, but that's having children. If you have a child, sometimes we think of, well, it's natural. And of course, there is this natural tendency or attraction, of course, to procreate and to have children that is there to have that desire um, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't come without risks or it also doesn't mean this is kind of a, a different type of conversation that just because it's natural to want to have children that we're all we're going to be good we're naturally going to be good parents and that's what sometimes people think they think well isn't it natural to be a parent so I'm why do I need to to study about it or learn anything about it well it's natural to want to be a parent and have that desire to procreate, but it doesn't mean you're naturally going to be good at raising a child. And there's a lot you can do to make yourself better at that. You do have some natural inclinations to even want to take care of a child. When we see a cute baby, it makes us want to take care of it, seeing it as helpless. And the cuteness is actually part of that helplessness makes us want to help it and to take care of it. But it doesn't necessarily mean you'll know how to take care of it in all ways from physical to emotional, and especially as it continues to grow. So uh, it doesn't mean we're naturally going to be good at it 
to begin with. That's one thing. But the other part is you're exposing yourself to, as I was saying, the most painful risk or pain that you can experience, which is to me to lose a child would be the most painful relational type of experience that even the way we talk about it is it's not the way things are supposed to go. Parents are, aren't supposed to bury their kids. It's supposed to be the other way around. Sadly and tragically, it can and does happen. I'm not here to, to scare you or to make you think it's very likely, but it does happen. And so when people decide to become parents, they're deciding many things, but they are also making a decision towards potentially having the worst type of pain they can experience, but with the feeling that, well, hopefully it's not likely and I'll do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen, but that it's worth that risk because I want to have this experience. I feel it's the right thing to do to have this child and to raise it with all the love I can with my partner and whoever else in our family will be part of that process. That to me is worth it. And so I say all this because having a child might feel very natural to many people. I think that's true. But to remember that in all of our relationships, there is this balance or this correlation between how much you risk or even causation. The more you risk, the more you can have. That's how you have that reward. Or if you want that reward, you have to have that risk. You can't experience the beauty of a relationship unless you're willing to expose yourself to getting hurt. Even in the dating process, I see people that will date people where they won't have to feel as vulnerable because they're not going to be that serious or they won't be a ser serious potential partner for them. And so in dating that person, there's not much to risk. Okay, if they like me, they like me. If they don't, I don't really care that much either. It's just not a big deal. And I don't have to get that open or share that much about myself. And so it feels pretty comfortable and safe. And that's what it is. It's comfortable and safe. And they might even have moments of joy and pleasure. You definitely can have those and have a good time, but you'll never experience something very strong and close. If you want to have that, you have to be willing to risk. And that's what I mean by investing into your relationships is that we have to recognize that when we invest, we don't just invest in a distant kind of way. Let's say if you click a button to invest some money, that's one thing. But when we invest in our relationships, we have to invest our feelings, our heart, our mind into it more and more fully to actually get close and to have those benefits. Without that risk, there's no reward. Without that investment, there's no um, benefits at the end or that emotional wealth that you gain through those experiences. And this does extend to our other relationships as well, friendships and people that we interact with, that the more you invest in them, the closer you get and the better they feel. But then, yes, if something happens to them or something happens to that friendship, it does hurt more. But as I mentioned before, grief is the price we pay for the beauty of the relationships we get to have and to get to experience. That the closer you feel, the more it will hurt when you lose them. But to me, that would be living a much more fulfilled life. And the opposite, to avoid closeness, to avoid that pain, would be leading a much more empty and unhappy life that you won't feel as good in the long term. So invest in your friendships and those relationships. If you're in a relationship, keep investing more 
of your time and effort, but also of your vulnerability, taking that risk that, yes, as much as you expose yourself in that way to risk, you can get hurt more, but you also can experience the most beautiful things that we can have as human beings, which is that feeling of being loving and being connected to someone. So I hope you will take that investment advice and remind yourself to make those investments in your relationship. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Zan Zendegi Azadi. Thank you.